bringing you the latest in tax credit news. This is Tax Credit Tuesday with your host, Michael Novogratik. Hello, I'm Michael Novogratik, and this is Tax Credit Tuesday. Today is Tuesday, January 14, 2020. 54 years ago this week, on January 13, 1966, the United States Department of Housing and Urban Development, or HUD, was officially formed. Now, HUD is, of course, in charge of public housing in the United States, as well as many programs familiar to listeners of this podcast. The creation of HUD was actually approved four months earlier, in September 1965, as part of the Department of Housing and Urban Development Act, but the department wasn't formally established until this week in 1966. Later in the podcast, I'll share some information on a proposed rule issued by HUD and some homelessness data that HUD released last week. Now, in more recent history, a year ago this Thursday to be exact, Senators John Hoven and Ron Wyden introduced the Move America Act of 2019. That's legislation that would create a federal infrastructure tax credit. Now, that bill is still alive, and the House version of the bill has four co-sponsors. In a little bit, I'll share some updates for you about some other community development, affordable housing, and historic preservation legislation, and how many co-sponsors there are for each bill. I think you're going to be impressed by the level of support for the legislation we'll discuss. Now, in today's podcast, I'm also going to share some updated capital raising figures from the Novogratic Opportunity Funds listing, as well as highlights from the Novogratic 2020 RAD Public Housing Conference that was held last week in Florida. And then I also have some updates about the Community Reinvestment Act regulations and other important news. If you're ready, let's get started. Now I'll start today with an update on the Novogratic Opportunity Funds listing. This is, as you hopefully know by now, a list of qualified opportunity funds on the Novogratic website. Novogratic conducts a rolling survey of qualified opportunity funds to determine how much capital they've raised, as well as what they target for investment. And by target, I mean both geographic target and the types of businesses they're funding. For example, does their fund target hospitality, an operating business, commercial residential, or something else? Now, these totals are periodically updated and released to the public. And last week, the totals were released for the first time in 2020. The result? Funds on the Novogratic Opportunities listing report having raised more than $6.7 billion. That's an increase of more than 50% from the amount reported one month earlier. In December, the total reported capital raised was $4.4 billion. And as I noted, in January, 50% more, $6.7 billion. Again, this is a Novogratic survey and includes information reported to Novogratic by qualified opportunity funds. The list also includes information gleaned from public sources, such as press releases. Through this research, We've also identified a few hundred funds that have yet to report to us capital-raised information. Also, a further note, this survey does not include proprietary or private funds that are owned or managed by the principal investors. For these reasons, we're confident that the actual total raised is significantly higher. Our estimate is that two or three times the amount of $6.7 billion has been invested in opportunity funds. Still, the Novogratz list is a strong indicator of the volume of opportunities on investment across the country. So one of the big questions is why was there such a significant growth in investment total in December, from December, I should say, into January? Well, the first answer is that the Novogratz Opportunity Funds listing 
keeps getting longer. There are more funds. There are a lot more funds on the list in January than in December, so that accounts for some of the jump. Also, two other major things happened in December. The first was that the Treasury Department released final regulations for Opportunity Zones investments. They were released on December 19th, so some investors may have gained enough comfort to make significant investments. Now, those regulations were, by the way, published in the Federal Register on Monday and are scheduled to become effective March 13th. Now, the second key event in December was that investors who wanted to be eligible to exclude the maximum 15% of their deferred gain, well, they had to make their investments by December 31st. That was the last day to make an investment that would be held seven years such that it could be eligible for the maximum 50% exclusion. It has to be held seven years as of December 31st, 2026. So there was likely significant investment that was made to beat this deadline and to maximize the benefit of the Opportunity Zones incentive. Regardless, all the evidence does show that investment is growing in Opportunity Zones. Now, the funds in the survey continue to invest in residential and commercial investments more than any other targeted investment type. In case you're wondering, I did write a blog post about the survey and what we know about the investments. It includes much more information than we can share during this Tax Credit Tuesday podcast. I'll include a link in today's show notes to the blog post, and I'll also tweet out a link. And by the way, if you operate an Qualified Opportunity Fund and you're not on the NerveGeek list, but you want to be, I'll include an email address that you can use to submit your information. Let's now turn to Congress. As we move into another legislative year, I'll share with you an update on the number of co-sponsors for some crucial, some critical affordable housing, community development, and historic preservation bills. Now, while we're in a new year, a new calendar year, we're actually in the second session of the 116th Congress. This means that bills introduced in 2019, they're still active in the House and Senate. So I want to talk about co-sponsors because the number of co-sponsors on a bill is very meaningful. A bill with a lot of co-sponsors may not get passed, but the widespread support makes it more likely that some provisions of the bill will be added to other legislation. In short, the more co-sponsors, the better. So I'll start with the Affordable Housing Credit Improvement Act. This is the bill that would increase the allocation of low-income housing tax credits by 50%. It would also establish a permanent 4% credit percentage floor and more. H.R. 3077, the House version of the bill, has 199 co-sponsors. That's right, more than 45% of the 435 members of the House are co-sponsors of the bill. And the breakdown is 126 Democrats and 73 Republicans. That's 54% of all House Democrats and 36% of all House Republicans. And of those co-sponsors, 29 are on the Tax Writing Ways and Means Committee. And by way of reference, there are 42 members of that committee. Turning to the Senate version, S1703, it's similarly popular. There are 38 co-sponsors in the Senate, 25 Democrats, 11 Republicans, and two independents. And that's out of 100 senators, so obviously that means 38%. And of those co-sponsors, 13 are on the Tax Writing Finance Committee, which is almost half the 28-member committee. Now, for perspective, similar bills in the previous Congress had 183 co-sponsors in the House and 45 in the Senate. So the bill is ahead of the previous pace in the House, and it's trailing in the Senate. However, there's still most of 2020 to go, and those are impressive totals. 
Now, let me touch on a couple of other significant bills and give you their co-sponsor updates. On the community development front, the New Markets Tax Credit Extension Act of 2019 is a bill that would make the New Markets Tax Credit an indefinite part of the tax code at $5 billion per year with an inflation adjuster. H.R. 1680, which is the House version of the bill, now has 120 co-sponsors with a very bipartisan mix. There are 64 Republicans and 56 Democrats. It's notable that there are more Republican co-sponsors than Democrats. Also, 25 of the co-sponsors are on the Ways and Means Committee, the Tax Writing Ways and Means Committee. Now turning to the Senate, S-750, the Senate version of the bill, has 35 co-sponsors, also bipartisan, 19 Democrats and 16 Republicans. And 14 of the co-sponsors are on the Senate Finance Committee. That is strong support for that bill. Some of that support may have led to the one-year extension of the New Markets Tax Credit at the end of 2019. Now, like I said, more co-sponsors for a bill means it's more likely for at least some provisions to get passed with that legislation. Now remember, the extension that I mentioned at the end of 2019 funds the credit at a $5 billion allocation level for 2020, which is the amount sought in the New Markets Tax Credit Extension Act. But once again, the credit expires at the end of this year. Finally, on the historic front, let's check in on the Historic Tax Credit Growth and Opportunity Act, or HTC GO Act. That bill, it's number HR 2825 in the House, would increase the tax credit, the historic tax credit, to 30% for smaller properties and change the rehabilitation threshold from 100% to 50% of project expenses, among other things. The HTC GO Act has 63 co-sponsors in the House, almost evenly split, 32 Democrats, 31 Republicans. Twelve of those co-sponsors are on the Tax Writing Ways and Means Committee. And in the Senate, Senate Bill 2615 has nine co-sponsors, five are Democrats and four are Republicans. These are all important bills to keep in mind as Congress goes forward this calendar year. Now, of course, it's very hard to pass significant legislation during a presidential election year. But as we've seen, provisions of the bills could be added to other legislation, especially tax extender legislation that could be considered in a post-election lame duck session of Congress which means this is a good time to check in with your congressional representatives. If you've been involved in an affordable housing, community development, or historic preservation property, be sure to let your congressional representatives know that these incentives help make that development possible, especially those members who have yet to co-sponsor these tax incentive bills. Now next, I want to thank all of you who joined us in Fort Lauderdale in Fort Lauderdale, Florida last week for the Novogratic 2020 RAD Public Housing Conference. We were fortunate to have Tom Davis, who is the director of the Office of Recapitalization at HUD, as our keynote speaker. Tom's office oversees a number of HUD programs, including the Rental Assistance Demonstration, or RAD program. Tom shared with the attendees an update on the status of the RAD program and answered some questions on guidance. He said that about 125,000 units have been converted through RAD representing more than $8 billion in construction improvements. Tom said it was amazing that RAD creates a lot of change out of a small amount of resources. Now by that, he meant that RAD functions with no new resources from HUD. Public-private partnerships make RAD conversions possible. Now Tom said he's very pleased and impressed 
with what RAD practitioners have been able to accomplish. He said that the vast majority of residents, about 85 to 90% of residents, in properties undergoing a RAD conversion have been able to stay in their original unit or in a unit in the same property. Tom also talked about the fourth revision to the RAD notice, published in October of 2019. He said the biggest change in the document is implementing the conversion option for Section 202 Project Rental Assistance Contract Units to Long-Term Section 8. Now, Section 202 is also known as Section 202 PRAC, and it's HUD's Supportive Housing for the Elderly program. There are about 120,000 Section 202 PRAC units. Many were built in the mid-1990s, making a lot of those properties about 25 years old. These Section 202 units do not have the same capital backlog crisis that public housing has, but Tom said that the Section 202 properties are heading in that direction if owners do not have a way to implement major recapitalization. And now that they're eligible for RAD, hopefully it'll be easier for property owners to use tax credits to improve their properties and stay ahead of capital needs. Now, Tom said that you should expect another notice of funding availability for Section 202 PRACs this spring. I'll share more details of that notice as soon as they become available. I also want to thank Tom Davis for sharing those insights with us, as well as all of our other conference panelists and speakers. And of course, once again, thanks to our attendees for joining us. The next Novograd Housing Conference will be in San Francisco, April 30th and May 1st. Registration is now open for that conference. I'll include the registration link in today's show notes. In other news, proposed Community Reinvestment Act regulations were published in the Federal Register last Thursday. These proposed CRA regulations were made public in December of last year by the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency and the FDIC. Now that they're published, this means that comments on the proposed rule are due in 60 days. Now, interestingly, the day before the proposed regulations were published in the Federal Register, a member of the Federal Reserve made a speech explaining why the Fed opted out of the proposed regulations. As you likely know, the OCC, FDIC, and Fed, all three regulatory agencies, oversee CRA compliance. And the Fed, once again, was not part of the release of these proposed regulations. Leo Brainerd, a member of the Fed's board, who also leads the Fed's CRA oversight responsibilities, she said that the Fed desired metrics that are more focused on local conditions, the economic cycle, and bank sizes. Brainerd said that the Fed wants metrics to measure CRA compliance, but she discussed provisions that are more of an adaptation of existing CRA regulations, where the OCC and FDIC proposal is more of a substantive change to the way CRA compliance is measured. Now, I did write a blog post and a column for the Novogratz Journal of Tax Credits about the proposed CRA regulations. I'll include links to both, as well as to Brainerd's speech. I'll, I'll include the links in today's show notes, and I'll tweet them out as well. Now, moving to some affordable housing news from HUD, HUD announced a proposed update to the Affirmatively Furthering Fair Housing Rule, or AFFH rule. The rule is intended to offer guidance for state and local governments to meet their obligation to promote fair housing. Now, you may remember the Obama administration updated the AFFH rule in 2015. But HUD now says the previous rule is ineffective and discourages the production of affordable housing. There has been plenty of resistance to that idea, but HUD has a new proposal. 
Comments on the proposal are due 60 days after the proposed rule is published in the Federal Register. Now, HUD also issued its annual homelessness assessment report last week. This is a point-in-time count of homeless people made in January 2019. According to the report, 567,715 people were homeless on that single night. This is an overall 2.7% increase from 2018, but a nearly 11% decline since 2010. According to the report, homelessness in California increased by 16.4%, which contributes significantly to the national increase. I do have a link to the report in today's show notes. I do have some brief renewable energy tax news. Legislation was reintroduced in the House to create a technology-neutral tax credit for clean energy and storage. The bill, the Energy Sector Innovation Act of 2019, was introduced by Representative Tom Reed. Representative Reed did, by the way, introduce similar legislation in 2018. The legislation focuses on what it calls emerging energy property and storage, and that's what is eligible for the credit. A link to the bill is in today's show notes, and I'll tweet it out as well. And finally, I have a quick Opportunity Zones update. Another update. The Department of Transportation last week released an interactive map that shows federal investment in major infrastructure projects in and around Opportunity Zones. The map includes data sets for major federal highway projects, commuter and light rail stations, airports, and more. A link to the map is in today's show notes. Well, that brings you to the end of this week's report. Before I close, I want to invite you to participate in the Novogratz webinar on Opportunity Zones Final Regulations. This webinar will be this Friday. My partner John Shreddy and I, along with Christian DeKuyper from Holland and Knight and Megan Christensen from the law firm Manette, they're going to join us and we're going to discuss the regulations released by the Treasury Department about a month ago, the Final Opportunity Zones Regulations. We're going to provide an overview of how the regulations apply to investors, to qualified opportunity funds, qualified opportunities on business property, qualified opportunities on businesses, and we'll take a look at the anti-abuse rules. I'll share a link to the registration for the webinar in today's show notes and tweet it out as well. I do hope that you'll join us this Friday. Please register. That's it for now. I'm Michael Novogratik. Thanks for listening. This weekly podcast has been brought to you by Novogratik and Company, LLP. Archived podcasts are available online at www.novaco.com forward slash podcast or by subscribing to the Tax Credit Tuesday podcast in iTunes. You can find related links referenced in this podcast in our show notes at www.novaco.com forward slash podcast. Novogratik and Company LLP is a national certified public accounting and consulting firm with offices nationwide. Learn more about our professional services at www.novaco.com.